Hi, and welcome to Fresh Voices, the podcast where we tell stories and learn new perspectives. I'm Julia Pinney, and today I'm here with Rebecca Zaritsky to talk about autism and what acceptance looks like. Rebecca, would you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Rebecca. Um, I am currently a junior in the college. I'm studying math, very typical of autism. And I was diagnosed with autism uh, the summer after my sophomore year. So Autism Awareness Day was April 2nd, and you posted on Facebook, so I'm going to read what you posted, Mm -hmm. if that's okay. Um, You posted, in honor of Autism Awareness Day, your friendly neighborhood autistic would like to make you aware of my existence. Hello, you are now aware. Let's try acceptance now. No? So I'm curious, why did you decide to post? Um... I'm in a lot of autism community groups um, on Facebook and a couple other places, Um, and apparently Autism Awareness Day is kind of, for lack of a better word, a shit show. Um, The phrase lighted up blue comes up a lot, and I don't like that phrase. Um, The search for a cure and a treatment, and then people saying that they want a treatment for their child because their child is so horrible, um, things like that, and I kind of wanted to show that I have autism, it's fine, it's not, or I am autistic, rather, um, identity first language. Yeah, there you go. Um, uh, so you wouldn't support a cure? I support the existence of a cure for those who want it, but I personally would not take a cure. Um, to me, so I have um, ADHD and depression as well, and to me ADHD and depression is kind of like my foot, if that makes sense. Like, I could cut off my foot, and it wouldn't really affect the rest of my body. I could get a prosthetic, it would be fine. Um, But autism is kind of like it's in my blood, whereas it would affect everything else. Autism is part of who I am. I don't know if I'd be interested in the things that I'm interested in. I don't know if I'd have the friends that I have. I don't know if I'd have any part of the life that I've had if I didn't have, if I wasn't autistic. And so I think a cure would be saying well, give up your entire personality and create something else. And at the age of 20, I think it's a little late to make a whole new personality. And it would be effectively labeling yourself as neuro, uh, neuroatypical, which is, is that something that, is well, that a label? I do label? consider myself neuroatypical or do, neurodiverse. Okay. Um, I am autistic, um, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, I am different from normal and probably a few standard deviations out, but so what? So is Einstein. So in what ways do you consider yourself two standard deviations away from normal? How do you see the world differently? How do you act differently than you feel the world expects you to? Well, that's actually hard for me to quantify because I've always been myself. Um, But, for example, I learned several months ago that the answer to the phrase, how are you, should end in, and how are you? Um, Because I would always get excited, tell the person how I was, and start a conversation from there and not actually ask them even if there was something that they actually wanted to talk about. So, like, halfway through a conversation, they'd be like, by the way, there was this thing I wanted to tell you. It's like, oh, darn, I forgot. (laughs) That was important. So basically just certain things about politeness, you feel like you have to learn versus they're not inherently something you've just always known. Yeah, I think um, somebody, I was reading a book about autism, and somebody said, like, it took them till their 20s to learn that, like, social interactions were a back-and-forth, kind of like a tennis match, and that's how I learned that social interactions were a back-and-forth, kind of like a tennis match. It's been a useful framework. And I know that you work as an EMT. How has your autism diagnosis affected your work in that realm? With patients, I find not much, because it's very scripted. Um, so there are certain things that you say to patients, and 
then you make small talk. It's not like you're having intense conversations. Um, and I find that I can actually comfort psych patients a little bit better than some other people. So that's been quite nice, but it's definitely like with my coworkers where I spend more time with them. Like if I'm at the building for 13 hours straight, I might not be able to keep on a neurotypical mask, as we call it. So you're pretending to be neurotypical the entire time. So a lot of people have found me rude and disagreeable and generally difficult to work with. Um, I think part of the problem is I'm pretty sarcastic and I'm also very bad at showing that I'm being sarcastic. So people think that I'm actually like insulting them or actually complaining when I'm just trying to make a joke and be haha relatable. And when were you diagnosed? Have you always known you had an autism diagnosis? No. So I was diagnosed the summer after my sophomore year of college. Okay, so 18, 19. 19, yes. Okay. So the story is that I was weird my whole life, obviously. I've had one or two friends, and like, but I was fine. I was happy. I couldn't make friends for the life of me. Like, couldn't make any, any friends. But then high school, I went to a STEM high school. Um, and I like to say that half the population was autistic and the other half was undiagnosed. So it was, my eccentricities were completely normal. I could walk up to somebody and go, do you want to see something cool and gross, like medically? And they'd be like, yes, absolutely. And we'd become friends. So high school was awesome. I had so many friends. I was so happy. And then I came to Georgetown and I think Georgetown more than other colleges even has a lot of people with a lot of social skills. Um, A lot of people who want to be politicians, lawyers, just generally who are social butterflies, extroverts, go to parties. And I'm not that way. And I think part of my motivation for going to Georgetown was wanting to learn and to be that way. And I kind of learned that I can't and I can't fit in with those people. And like freshman year, I lived in Darnell, which... um, because of the structure of Darnell, I made friends because you just kind of form a group. And then sophomore year, those friends kind of fell away because we weren't living together, so we weren't seeing each other as much, and I could not make new friends. And I was just really unhappy, and then um, I was reading about autism because one of my special interests happens to be psych disorders or neuro disorders. And I was reading this thing on autism, and I turned to my roommate, and I went, you know, maybe I have that. And I was expecting her to react the same way I say, like the same way she would when I say I have cancer when my leg itches and just kind of laugh and go, ha ha, you're funny. And she actually looked at me and went, you know, that's possible, right? And I was like, oh, okay. And so I started reading about autism, especially autism in women, because it does present differently. There is a gender difference. We just are now finding out. And I went to a therapist. And has your roommate been a source of support through the whole process? My roommate is an angel. Jenny, this is a a shout-out. You are an angel. And has she treated you differently before or after? No. Okay. She's an angel. She's an angel all the time. Did you find that people started treating you differently once you told them? So I think once I tell people that I'm autistic, they're like, oh, okay, so, like, this is a thing that's separate from you that we can fix. And I've never seen certain things as separate from me. So, like, for example, I fidget or I might not make the right facial expression at the right time. And once I told people that I was autistic, people started pointing everything out that I was doing quote unquote wrong. So it was, don't move your hands like that. Don't inflect your voice like that. Don't move your face like that. Don't gesture that way. Don't talk about this for that long. And it would be like once a minute, 
somebody would say something. And I eventually just had to tell everybody to please just stop because it wasn't helping. It was just making me stressed. And by the way, when I'm stressed, I act more autistic. So they were just weren't achieving their goals. I was just stressed and miserable. And yeah, that was really difficult. But with most people, I've sort of gotten through to them. I think it's very natural to want to correct somebody when you feel that they're embarrassing themselves. But I don't know that I'm embarrassing myself. So it's not that bad. So people want to help. But it does strike me that their urge to help actually isn't very helpful because what they're trying to do is, quote-unquote, fix you. Yeah. When you don't want to be fixed and you shouldn't be fixed, you just are who you are. Yeah. And I feel like that is kind of the crux, well, not kind of, that is the crux of the neurodiversity movement. Yeah. This idea that there isn't just a normal brain. There's a variety of different brains, and we should be accepting of that. Do you have an opinion about the movement as a whole? So I agree with the neurodiversity movement. I think that brains come in all shapes and sizes, as do bodies, and all of it is wonderful. Um, But just because something is wonderful doesn't mean that some people wouldn't want to change it. And I think the neurodiversity movement kind of falls flat there. So, for example, right, my nose is perfectly fine. But some people, if they had a nose like mine, would want a nose job. And, like, my nose is fine. I can breathe through it. I can smell. It serves its function. But some people would still want a nose job. So, and I think the neurodiversity movement in this metaphor would say, no, nose jobs are evil. And I don't see why. I don't, like, I would not take a cure myself because I am who I am. But, like, for example, I used to be really interested in clinical psychology and psychiatry. And I don't think I would be very good at that. I've met clinic, I've met clinical people who are on the spectrum, and it does inhibit them, and it inhibits their relationships with their patients. And I don't know that I would be very comfortable going into that. Now, I'm also interested in research, and my goals have kind of changed. But if that was the only thing that I ever wanted to do, and my disability were to stop me, I think I would want a cure, um, at least some of the time. So would you consider yourself disabled? I think disability is dependent on context. So do I consider myself disabled right now? No, I don't feel ill. Um, I am comfortable now, but would I consider myself disabled if I'm at a huge party? Yeah, absolutely. I have no idea what to do. And have you been able to get better at that and learn, or is that something that you've just kind of avoided situations where you don't really know what to do? I do avoid a lot of those situations. I hate parties. I don't go. Um, but I did go to my friend's 21st the other night, and it was actually fine. I was stunned. So Why was it fine? I don't know. It was just fine. I think it was very short because okay. it's the 21st. It's like an hour and a half. And then yeah, they're over, the it's over by midnight. I'm not yeah. 21, so ha. Ha. Um, but so I think every year I'm like, my social skills are never going to get better. This is the end. Like, this is the top. And then they do. And, like, especially since college, because I've been in that situation where, like, my eccentricities are not accepted, and I have to learn social skills, and I'm watching all of these people with all of the social skills. I think my social skills have gone on by, grown by leaps and bounds. Definitely still autistic, but I think my masking skills have gotten better, which, again, both a blessing and a curse, because masking does come with a certain amount of anxiety, but... And are there specific situations where you find yourself masking or feeling the need to mask? I think mostly with the new people. Um, No matter whether I trust them, don't trust them. Obviously, my roommate knows me well, and if I were to mask every time he was in my room, that would really suck. 
Yeah, and that's um, so important that you have yeah. a safe space to live. That's something I've definitely learned in college yeah. that, you know, your living situation, it just changes everything. If it's bad, everything's bad. If it's good, everything's great. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to I'm happy to, to yeah. hear so that. Yeah, I've been that's really good. lucky. Um, I mean, there are certain times where it's like, I don't really need, like, you don't really need to know that I'm autistic. Like, you, you're teaching me history or something. So I don't necessarily tell everybody, but. Do you tell your professors? About it. If it comes up, um, I've told my neuro professor because there was an essay on who I am as a thinker, and I kind of modeled it off a little bit of Temple Grandin, and I was like, yeah, so I have autism, and I might mention that, and I just wanted to tell you before I handed it in so you wouldn't be, like, too confused, because I know that I'm not the stereotypical image of somebody with autism, so. I also, I find that if I'm telling somebody, I use person-first language to kind of minimize it. Would and you, then it would you slowly grows on them. Would you explain what person-first language is? So person-first language is person with autism or, like, I have autism, whereas identity-first language is I am autistic or autistic person. Um, so most people in the neurodiversity and disability rights movement broadly prefer um, identity-first because, so the way that I've read it is if you insist on person-first, you are emphasizing the person's humanity, and we don't feel that our humanity is in any way detracted by our disability. And I also think that, like, you say diabetic person, you say blonde person, like, this is another attribute of me. And I don't think it's bad. Um, and further, it, in terms of autism at least, I don't think it's a part of me. I think it is me. Like, I can't detach it from myself. And to say person with autism implies that I am a person and the autism is kind of like my arm. And if you just ripped it off, I would just be neurotypical and walk straight into a shopping mall and get my nails done. <laughs> so you mentioned in your post, let's all try acceptance. What would acceptance look like for you? How would you feel comfortable being able to go out and say, oh, I'm autistic, as opposed to saying, I am a person with autism? I think public perceptions of autism need to change, and that's something I've spoken about in, term, in regards to a cure. Um, I would want public perceptions of autism to change such that it wouldn't lead to, some people refer to it as eugenics. I think that term is strong, especially in terms of, like, there is no autism gene. We don't, like, we don't sterilize healthy adults unless there's a medical reason. Um, but, like, I think before a cure comes out or whatever it is, we would need to create a, um, a happy public perception of autism. So people like me who are happy and reaching their dreams, and including people all over the spectrum, right? I mean, I'm on one end of the spectrum where I can pass as neurotypical for maybe short periods, and people don't see me and go, oh, yeah, that she's autistic. Um, but there are people out there who are, who are dependent on carers or who can never live independently or have stable employment. Um, and we need to accept all of that, and we need to help people. Um, if they want to live independently, we need to create devices and support around them so they can do that. But I just want the world to not associate autism with, like, this screaming, horrible child who's so far removed from everything that they should love. Yeah, I guess that you kind of answered my question, but I was thinking that a big myth of neurodiversity is this idea that neurodiversity only applies to high-functioning autistic um, individuals. Right. And uh, I was reading this great article recently about an office. It was in the, an article in the New York Times. It was about an office that had certain 
accommodations for people with autism. Uh, they kept the lights down low. They didn't change the orientation of furniture. There was a, they had managers uh, who were aware that their employees had autism, and they would tell everyone when they were putting a new pattern on the couch or just changing right. the couch. Um, they also had couches that were long enough that people could take naps in the middle of the day because it was they were aware of the fact that a lot of these people were on medication and would need to be taking naps during their lunch break or something. Um, So I was curious, what kind of accommodations do you feel you need or don't need? So personally, I don't have a lot of the classic, um, I guess, sensitivities associated with autism. I was a really picky eater as a child. I don't know if that's autism or not because, again, I've never not been autistic. But aside from that, I can tolerate lights. I can't hear electricity. I know some people with autism can actually hear electricity or feel electricity. Um, I have a really awful sense of smell um like things I don't have sensory problems basically and so I wouldn't need a lot of those accommodations I think for me which is partly why I don't consider myself necessarily disabled um let me think about this so I think I would just want more people to go oh okay like she said that dumb thing okay that's fine um yeah, so I guess, could we revisit this idea of half the people at your high school were undiagnosed? And I, yeah, I guess, that was a facetious comment. No I, <laughs> I, no, I completely understand. I guess I'm curious about this idea of what is the line between undiagnosed, someone with eccentricities, versus someone actually with a concrete autism diagnosis, and how does society treat those two people differently? I think the line is when it begins to impair your life and what you want to do. Okay. So I could not make friends at Georgetown. Um, I just couldn't make friends. Like, I would meet people, and I'd be like, do you want to hang out? And they'd be like, yes, and then never get back to me. (laughs) Um, So that was my impairment. Whereas some people, they're eccentric, and they have groups of people who are also eccentric, and it's not a problem. So I don't think I would have qualified for a diagnosis in high school. Um, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to seek one because I didn't think there was anything wrong. And so I think disability, in a lot of cases at least, is created by the environment. Um, and, yeah, I think that's... No, that's huge. I, I'm thinking of, obviously, I'm, this is obviously an example of physical disability, but there's a play, I'm from Los Angeles, and there's a playground in Los Angeles that is completely wheelchair accessible. And it... Is it often comes up in news articles as this idea of uh, news articles that are focused on disability rights is this idea of well no one has a disability at this playground because everything is accessible if you have your best friend is in a wheelchair you can still go on the play structure with them there's no difference between these kids I disagree with that actually. You, you do okay let's hear it um, so obviously no one has a disability in terms of if they're paralyzed on that playground but I think that doesn't take into account a lot of impairments. So if you have a mental illness, right, if you have depression, if you have anxiety, the world can be as nice to you as you want, and you are still suffering. There are still things that you cannot do. And if you, like, if I really wanted to be a clinical psychologist, I mean, I can't make people be nice to me, right? Like, I can make people be nice, as in, like, talk to me, but I can't make people be my friends, and I wouldn't want to. I can't make patients like me or develop rapport with me if I'm unable to generate that. Um, 
And some people, like, I've had chronic back pain before. Like, that's not going away just because, like, there's a slide I can go down. Or, like, the office is accepting of it. Like, I am still in pain. And that, like, a lot of things cause pain internally, physically, mentally. And that pain isn't something that you can accommodate. And I think when you just reduce disability to the social model, which is all disability is created by the environment, you're ignoring a lot of people. And I think this movement was invented by straight white men who were paralyzed um, from the waist down. And who were ignoring mental Yeah, who were ignoring everyone else. <laughs> disability. Okay. They were ignoring, yeah, they were just ignoring everyone else. Okay. And have you been able to meet anyone at Georgetown? who shares an autism diagnosis or who you feel, no, you haven't. The only other person that I've heard of at Georgetown is a law student, Lydia Brown, I think. Um, They, them pronouns. They wrote a blog called Autistic Hoya. Yes. um, Which I read. Yeah, yeah, I googled Georgetown autism and that came up. That's all I got. Okay. And so have you been able to find some level of community with people who don't necessarily share an autism diagnosis, but may know how you're feeling? Not at Georgetown. I found that really difficult at Georgetown because, again, everybody is what I like to call super holistic. So holistic is not autistic, um, as opposed to neurotypical, which means no neuro, like no ADHD, Tourette's, learning disability. So holistic is just not autistic. Um, I call them super holistics. It's not actually a term. So I actually don't know. Is that an official term or is that a Rebecca? Yes, or is that a... Holistic ro- is an actual term. It is an actual term. It's used okay. in neurodiversity movement. Thank yes. you, thank you. Super holistic is not. I made it up. That's a U term. Okay, yes. great. <laughs> I need that distinction. Um, I call them super holistics. The people that, like, walk into a room, everybody loves them. So just the very charismatic kind of yeah. future president of the United States, which we have well, plenty of at Georgetown. Future... I don't know. You don't need charisma for that anymore. I guess that is that is a decent point. But basically, yes, those people. Yeah. Everybody at Georgetown is that. Um, in my experience, more or less. And even the people who aren't are at least very holistic. Um, so I really haven't found an autistic community at Georgetown. If there are any autistic people out there, please message me. Please okay. find me. We can be friends. So I am curious about this this friends thing. Um, have you, has that been able to change you being able to make friends? Somewhat. Um, I think a diagnosis didn't really change it. I don't really... I have friends, but I don't really see them as often as I'd like to. And I have people that I'm on good terms with that I couldn't really, like, ask to get coffee with. Um, So it hasn't really changed as much as I would perhaps like it to. And I think that just the Georgetown vibe. Um, But since my diagnosis, I've definitely been more accepting of that. Um, it's less there's something wrong with me and more this is how I am, other people are different, oh well. So Georgetown is one environment, high school is one environment. How do you see yourself navigating this this autism diagnosis in the professional world, in your world after Georgetown? So I'm really excited about that. Mm -hmm. So I am hopefully going to be going to graduate schools. Um, And part of the reason that I decided to go into academia and into research is because I know a lot of um, scientists are on the spectrum. It's very accommodating for people on the spectrum. Like, you're kind of expected to be, like, alone in your office thinking your smart thoughts um, and writing things, and that's uh, pretty good at that. Um, And 
like I know when I'm applying to MD PhD programs, which is what I want to do. Um, I'm a genius, you guys. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. If I get in, it would be great. Um, when I'm applying to programs, I know that I'm not going to change. So when I applied to Georgetown, it was with the intention. I looked at the graduating seniors and I went, oh, they have so many social skills. I want that. And I'm never going to get that. So I think it's been good for me. I think I've learned a lot. And I'm very excited to get out <laughs> and go to an environment where it's a little bit more acceptable to be weird. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me, Rebecca. Um, this was a great conversation. I learned a lot. So thank you for teaching me. And thank you for sharing your story. Did our conversation today make you think about a story you've always wanted to tell? Is there an opinion you hold that you've always wanted to talk about? Send me an email at jtp65 at georgetown.edu. Rebecca, any last words for our listeners? I'm going to end it with the same thing I ended my Facebook post with. Let's try acceptance now. No. I'm doing a pose. You guys can't see it. What, what pose are you doing? Will you explain it? Can you explain it? That's yes. Nice. Okay. So Rebecca is standing with her, let's see, left and right. I've never been good at this. Um, with her left arm out as if she's holding an apple perhaps. And her right hand is up. She's kind of presenting herself to the world saying, let's try acceptance. Good? No. No? <laughs> yes. Let's try acceptance now. No. Let's try acceptance now. No? Exactly. We should try acceptance now. I like that idea. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank Pana, this semester's assistant podcast editor, for a fantastic opening and closing music, and give her a shout-out along with Kayla, our podcast editor. I hope you'll tune in to the next installment of Fresh Voices. Thanks for listening. <laughs>